The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds so that as your scripture is read, as your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy what it is that you are saying to us this day. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This fall here at Fifth Avenue Church, we've been studying the human heart. We've been assessing our souls. We've asked, what are the instincts and impulses that guide me? And this has been humbling work. Each of us tends to think, I have good instincts, but do we? Really? Some of our knee-jerk responses to things are harmful. Some of our gut reactions in life cause confusion and pain to those around us. And yet we struggle to rewire our own hearts. Some of our impulses are so deeply embedded in our psychic DNA, we cannot imagine thinking or responding in any other way. And then along comes God. God, the Bible tells us, wants all of us, body, mind, and soul. God wants to clean the gunk out of our hearts, and then the Holy One wants to reshape us. Really? Well, how does God plan to do that? Today, in the seventh sermon in this series, our attention turns to the good book's prime directive— at the heart of the story of Jesus, in the midst of a life spent eating pita bread with the broken, the lost, and the searching, Christ can be seen reaching out in love to everyone around him. And that also happens to be what God wants of us. You want the key to a life worth living? You want to fix that messed up part of yours? The solution, Jesus says, is to do two things. Love God and love your neighbor. Do those two things. Do them at the same time, and everything else will fall into place. Is that true? Can it be that simple? Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes to us from the first letter of John, chapter 4, beginning with the seventh verse. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and do testify that the father has sent his son as the savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the son of God and they abide in God. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. And then turning our attention to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, we begin with the 28th verse. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Like many in my generation, I was introduced to television programs by PBS, the public broadcasting system. In preschool, my brother and I would jump around to the manic energy of the electric company. We were thrilled by the colorful creatures who lived along Sesame Street. Oscar the Grouch was a personal hero. Although when given a choice, my show, my five-year-old jam, was the ongoing saga of the land of make-believe narrated by the trusty tenor of Fred Rogers. 
with fuzzy cardigan sweaters, a puppet named Daniel the Tiger, and simple melodies, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was 30 minutes of therapy for young souls. In Mr. Rogers' house, it was okay to talk about your feelings, even the ugly ones. It was okay to raise questions about topics that were scary, things like divorce and war. It was okay to laugh at human foibles and to realize that life could, at times, be really hard. The conversations in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood were always conducted in a calm manner. You felt safe there. You felt welcome. Every program began with the sung invitation, won't you be, won't you be, please won't you be my neighbor. Years later, I learned that the man singing those simple words over and over for 912 episodes, Fred Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister from Pittsburgh. He spent his life encouraging children to love self and to love neighbor. Asked about his steady repetition of this message, Mr. Rogers explained, as human beings, our job in life is to help people realize how rare and valuable each one of us really is, that each of us has something that no one else has or ever will have, something inside that is unique to all time. I was fed by this affirming message. I grew up with Mr. Rogers, and then, like so many, I grew out of Mr. Rogers, and that makes sense. His show was aimed at younger children, so eventually I found Scooby-Doo mysteries more exciting than Daniel the Tiger's feelings. But more significant than that were the growing doubts that I had about the truth of Mr. Rogers' most basic premise. Through high school and into college, I became less and less sure that everyone around me was rare and valuable, that every neighbor was worthy of love. And I wasn't alone in this. Within American culture and within our own hearts, there are two very different perspectives on love that exist in constant conflict with each other. Let's call the first perspective on love the Mr. Rogers approach. According to Fred Rogers, every human being is imprinted with something unique that makes them worthy of love. And let's name the second perspective on love after another popular cultural figure, Ayn Rand. According to Ayn Rand, we would be well served as individuals and as a society to acknowledge that love is a selfish act. Spoiler alert, this is what I have on tap for you today, Ayn Rand versus Mr. Rogers, the ultimate WWE Smackdown. And I'll freely admit it feels strange to put these two very different people in the ring against each other, but if you hang with me, I hope to show you why this contrast is so important. 
Born in 1905, Ayn Rand was the child of successful professional parents who lived in St. Petersburg, Russia. In 1917, as the events of the Russian Revolution unfolded, Rand's family was displaced. Her father's pharmacy business was confiscated and the family fled to Crimea. Eventually, in 1926, Rand traveled to America on a tourist visa, and like so many immigrants, she stayed. In a journal, Rand wrote that on seeing the skyline of Manhattan for the first time, she was so moved that she wept tears of splendor. Over the next 10 years, Rand spent time with relatives in Chicago, worked as an extra in the movie industry in Hollywood, and tried to catch a break as a writer. After numerous rejections, success finally came. In 1943, Rand's manuscript, The Fountainhead, was published by Bob's Merrill here in New York City. The Fountainhead tells the story of an architect named Howard Rourke. Now, Rourke is struggling to make a name for himself in New York's architectural scene. He, he's hampered, in a way, by his own avant-garde ideas. And in fact, many people think that Rand based Rourke's character on real-life architect Frank Lloyd Wright. In the office, Rourke's boss asks him to tone down his designs, to make them more palatable to the masses, but, but Rourke refuses to conform. He's utterly committed to his unique vision. In, in fact, at one point, Rourke dynamites a partially constructed building of his own design when he finds out that another architect had plans to change how it was going to look. Rand's story of an artist unwilling to compromise became a worldwide success. It, it was so popular, popular that Warner Brothers bought the film rights to it, and then the film company hired Rand to write the screenplay. And in 1949, Gary Cooper starred as Howard Rourke. In both the book and movie versions of The Fountainhead, Ayn Rand sketches a theme that is central to her work. To Rand, true heroes of this world are those who have the integrity and independence to free themselves from the expectations of the wider public. She celebrated individuals whose ego and intellect set them apart from those who had neither the courage nor the vision to innovate. This same premise undergirds Rand's other best-selling novel, Atlas Shrugged. Published in 1957, written in a science fiction style, Atlas Shrugged imagines a dystopian American future. Rand describes a United States that has become a sluggish and corrupt welfare state facing increasing regulations and legal burdens, a number of private business leaders, scientists, and artists decide to go on strike. They disappear from the world. They retreat to a mountain hideaway where they set up a new free market economy. Rand's point here is clear. 
Exceptional people can shine most bright when they are freed from the burdens of community, when they are subject to as few rules and regulations as possible. Well, you can see why those who favor small government, people like former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan and Senator Rand Paul, often declare themselves Ayn Rand devotees. And you can also see in her work, can't you, why young people who are looking to escape the shackles of adolescent conformity might keep a dog-eared copy of the fountainhead on a shelf near their bed. And perhaps you can see why famous actors like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, tennis greats like Martina Navratilova and Billie Jean King, Baseball superstar Cal Ripken Jr. and billionaire investor Mark Cuban name Ayn Rand's novels among their favorite books. Rand has a deep appreciation for the intense focus and extreme drive that you see at the heights of creative endeavors, competitive sports, and spin straw into gold business endeavors. In these realms, if you don't walk onto the field believing I'm exceptional, you're headed for failure. Here, curiously enough, we find a brief nexus of agreement between Mr. Rogers and Ayn Rand. Both, like Charlene Han Powell last week, encourage people to value the self, to have a healthy love for the self, and both point to the exceptional in people. But of course, this is also where the two diverge. Mr. Rogers told children over and over that everyone was exceptional, that every neighbor deserves our love, where Ayn Rand, on the other hand, asserted that being exceptional truly exceptional was a rare thing. In Rand's experience, her hardworking family was exceptional, while the enforced collectivism that swept her family's livelihood away was evidence that other people were not. For the rest of her life, Rand remained suspicious of those who, in the name of equality and fairness, would put social restraints on individuals with promising intellects and the drive to succeed. And this also explains why Rand believed that individuals were morally superior to communities. Communities, she argued, in their drive for conformity naturally want to restrain exceptional people. And when they fail at that, they use their power to leech away, to loot the profits that the exceptional create. In response to this, Rand argued for something that she called objectivism or radical self-interest. Radical self-interest is the notion that the most moral thing that you can do is to look out for yourself. When we put others ahead of ourselves, Rand argued, 
we are acting irrationally. Watch out, she cautions, when a society asks you to put its goals above your own. When we look at history, she says, when we look at the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, it's not difficult to see the evils of communism and fascism as being closely related. Both systems asked people to sacrifice themselves for a common good that was anything but good. Corrupt communities, Rand claims, compel us to look to individuals for moral guidance. In this, she said, humans are sort of basic. We're primarily interested, Rand says, in two things. We're interested in preserving ourselves, in staying alive, and we're interested in pursuing things that make us happy. Knowing this, accepting our self-interest as rational behavior, says Rand, gives a person a solid foundation, a foundation from which they might criticize politics and economics and even religion. A firm atheist, Rand found belief in God to be sort of mystical silliness, but she didn't stop there. Rand argued that contrary to the world's major religions, we have no moral obligation to give of ourselves in order to help others. In fact, the novelist criticized Jesus and his followers saying, it is in the name of that symbol that men are asked to sacrifice themselves for their inferiors. We should not, Rand argued, offer love to those who are undeserving. Love, she stated, is a selfish act. We love people because we value them. We, we love people because they have something to offer us in return. Love, to quote a Latin phrase popular in the news of late, is the ultimate quid pro quo. It's an exchange. You give me something, I give you something in return. And this takes us back to where we started, Rogers versus Rand. Love as an embrace of the other, every other, simply because they are our neighbors, because they're part of the human family, because they bear in their soul the unique and beautiful imprint of God, versus love as an exchange, as a relational bartering system, as a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately calculation. Now here, I want to pause, because I know it sounds like I'm about to sandbag on Rand. And naturally, as a pastor, I must want Fred Rogers, a fellow Presbyterian, to win this debate. And in the end, that's true. <laughs> but first, I've got to admit something. I think Ayn Rand is right, or at least partially right. I think the human heart is always calculating whether or not our benefits, our relationships benefit us whether or not they're good for us. I think Rand pegs us. It is a natural and very human thing to ask, 
What should I do to maximize my happiness, to make my lot better, to extend my life? On the contrary, when, when Mr. Rogers asks children to love their neighbors because they are inherently exceptional, he's cutting against the grain. What Jesus asks us to do, what Moses set down in ancient Hebrew law is unnatural. It's unnatural to see your neighbor as being worthy of love regardless of whether or not they can do something for you. It's unnatural to pledge your resources to a community like a church to give self-sacrificially to lift up your neighbors in need. I have to give this to Ayn Rand. Her perspectives make sense to our hearts. They find a comfortable home here, especially when we're in a hard place. When you're on the run with your family because society has kicked the legs out from under you, it makes sense to focus on self and survival and maximizing what little happiness you might get. In other words, when people are struggling, when people are struggling, self-sacrifice and love thy neighbor are a tough sell. A few weeks ago, I read a piece by Monica Potts, a beautifully written piece in the New York Times. Potts grew up in rural Arkansas, and she lives there now. In this reflection, Potts describes a fight that broke out in her corner of the state, Van Buren County, over a proposed pay raise for the local librarian. Now, the issues leading to this dust-up are complicated. The county library is located in Clinton, Arkansas, a place where the median income is $34,700 a year, a place where 23% of the population lives below the poverty line. Those opposed to the pay raise cite the fact that few people in that area get paid a salary like the $42,000 a year proposed by the library board. As the fight picks up steam, though, some in the community question the very need for a library and the value of a librarian's education. Others worry over frivolous increases in local property and sales taxes. Still others lament the loss of the natural gas company that had to move because it helped to raise the local tax base some worried that the county was at risk of, of losing the library altogether, losing a gathering place for, for young children who were learning how to read and a resource for those who had no access to the internet. In the article, Potts writes, the library fight was itself a fight over the future of rural America. What it meant to choose to live in a county like mine, what my neighbors were willing to do for one another, what they were willing to sacrifice to foster a sense of community here. And the answer, Potts writes, was, for the most part, not very much. The article left me in a, in a gloomy state of mind, but, uh, but I was 
grateful to the author who, to her credit, resisted laying easy blame on any one group. Instead, she sketched in, in a steady and sober manner a picture of the forces and events that lead many of the citizens of Clinton, Arkansas, to doubt that their community or their country has their best interests at heart. From the Iron Range in northern Minnesota to the textile towns of North Carolina, from farm counties in western New York to neighborhoods just north of us here in the Bronx, there are too many places in this country in which people feel abandoned and betrayed by the rest of society. Rand sees this, she names this, and she deserves credit for calling it out. My concern is not so much with Ayn Rand's diagnosis, but with her solution. What happens when radical self-interest becomes more than a brief survival tactic? What happens when self-interest becomes the ethical lens through which we view all of life? What happens when human love is reduced to quid pro quo? What sort of society will be born of self-interest? In 2008, Eddie Lampert, a billionaire who made his fortune managing successful hedge funds, became the CEO of Sears. And like so many other old guard retail giants, Sears was struggling. Turning the company around was gonna be a huge challenge, but Lampert had a plan. A fan of Ayn Rand's, Lampert's plan was to restructure Sears according to the novelist's principles, according to radical self-interest. Mina Kimes, a reporter for Bloomberg, describes the attempted turnaround. Lampert went into Sears with the belief that if the company's leaders were told to act selfishly they would run their divisions in a rational manner, boosting overall performance. Instead, says Kimes, the divisions turned against each other, and Sears and Kmart, the overarching brands, suffered. Interviews with more than 40 former executives, many of whom sat at the highest levels of the company, paint a picture of a business ravaged by infighting. In a parallel article about Sears for Salon, Lynn Stewart Paramore wrote, it got crazy. Executives started undermining other units because they knew that their bonuses were tied to their individual unit's performance. They began to focus solely on the economic performance of their unit at the expense of the overall Sears brand. And then, writing for PBS, Denise Cummins observed, Sears became a miserable place to work rife with infighting and screaming matches, employees focused solely on making money in their own unit, and they ceased ha having any loyalty to the company or stake in the overall unit's survival. Now, I don't think, as some have claimed, that Ayn Rand killed Sears. <laughs> It's hard to imagine the novelist stoking the fires of corporate civil war, but still, I think the plight of Sears raises important questions. 
Is radical self-interest really the best route to profitability? What happens when people who actually enjoy working with their neighbors, who want to create something bigger than themselves, are pit against each other? And these questions send us back to Mr. Rogers. Now, I can see some of you going, oh, come on, is the preacher really going to say that children's television has a solution for us, a plan? I can hear the platitudes already. Ditch the radical self-interest. Adopt a Mr. Rogers approach to business. Treat everyone as though they're special. Oh, that will work. Try that at your next team meeting. Pull out the hand puppets. Process people's feelings. Sing sappy songs. Next stop idealist. <laughs> Deep down, our hearts wonder if Ayn Rand is right. Care for your neighbor is nice counsel for children, but it is not, we suspect, an ethic suited to this rough and tumble world. Remember, Mr. Rogers spent his time in the land of make-believe. We are stuck with reality. We live in the realm of quid pro quo. Sorry, that's but the way it is. As White House Chief of Staff Mike Mulvaney said this week, get over it. Maybe Mulvaney's right, maybe. But here's the thing, Fred Rogers did not take children to the land of make-believe to escape hardship or challenge. Fred Rogers took children to the land of make-believe because it was a safe place to talk about the forces wrestling for their little hearts. The man worked with puppets, but he was not naive. Fred Rogers knew that whenever we come face to face with our neighbors, our humanity is at stake. The moral character of the world is at stake. My friends, the most basic ethical question we can ask is, what do I see? when I look at another human being. The things that run through our mind when we come face to face with another person are the most powerful forces shaping society. When you look at a fellow from, from Clinton, Arkansas, who's convinced that no one cares about his fate, who do you see? When you walk down the hallway at school, who do you see? When you pick up the mail in your building, who do you see? When you look into the face of an immigrant, someone like Ayn Rand, one of the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, who do you see? When you encounter another person, do you see someone who's going to count as a deficit on your ledger? Do you see a drain on your time and your resources? Do you see someone who has precious little quid for your quo? That may, in fact, be the case. But, says Moses, but, says Jesus, but, says Mr. Rogers, 
Your ledger is not the only thing that matters. Others matter. Others have intrinsic worth. Look closer, look with care, look deeper, look with eyes tinged with hope and compassion, and you just might see standing there before you someone extraordinary, someone intrinsically worthy of your love. You just might see your neighbor. Tim Shriver, in an article entitled Ripples in the World, describes his work as the chair of the Special Olympics. Shriver writes that the Special Olympics have recast his entire way of looking at the world. And this is what he says. At times, I will pull myself out of whatever I'm doing and try to remember that I am united with all that is. I, I give myself license to step away and reconnect. I, I fail mostly, but once in a while I succeed. And, and when I do, I feel like I'm, I'm touching a sweet spot of wonder and peace. It enables me to be present to people in a way that I can communicate to them that I love them unconditionally. Many times I've watched, for instance, as a person with Down syndrome stands with a gold medal around her neck, arms raised high to a cheering crowd. I can't look at that child, at that human being, without slipping out of dualistic thinking. Those moments are kind of a sacrament. They are, they are both-hand moments where shadow and light coexist in the same experience. Divine energy shoots vertically through me like a force and says, see, look, pay attention to what is right in front of you. That is all you need to know. Pay attention to what is right in front of you. That is all you need to know. According to Mark, a scribe once asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And without hesitation, Jesus responded, love God with every fiber of your being. That's the first and most important commandment. And in case you're wondering, Christ continued, there's a second just like it. In fact, the second commandment is basically another way to say love God with every fiber of your being. It goes like this, love your neighbor as yourself. Pay attention to what is right in front of you, says Jesus. And that is all that you need to know. Go from this place and pay attention to the one who is right in front of you. That, Jesus said, is all you need to know. Go trusting in the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. 
If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.